Welcome to the Thoughts from a Page podcast, a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network, hosted by me, Cindy Burnett, a voracious reader and book columnist who provides you with casual author conversations and insider information on all of the newest releases that I have read and recommend. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations or to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. If you love to read, please consider joining my Patreon group. I offer at least two bonus episodes a month, one where I talk about the next month's most anticipated books and one where I chat with an independent bookseller, all about their store and the books that they recommend. In addition, I host a monthly early read where members have advanced access via NetGalley to a digital copy of a book, and then we meet on Zoom with the author pre-publication to chat about that book. January's book is The Sweet Spot by Amy Popel, and for February, there are two, Lauren Willig's new book, Two Wars and a Wedding, and a debut by Lee Abramson called A Likely Story. Thanks so much to those who already participate, and I hope you will consider joining us. December is a quiet publishing month, so I am taking this time to release some episodes that are a little different from my usual fare. For this one, I reminisce about eight of my favorite interviews and why the books and authors resonated with me, followed by a clip from each episode. I include when the original interview ran in my introductions, as well as a link to each episode in my show notes, so that you can go back and catch the entire show if you missed it the first time around. Or if this little blurb reminds you how much you enjoyed the interview when you listened to it originally, you can go back and catch it again. I thoroughly enjoyed revisiting each of these conversations, and I hope you enjoyed them as well. And now for a quick break. For the last year, I have been focusing more on my health and my eating habits. In connection with that, I have started drinking AG1 in the morning. I first gave AG1 a try because I needed more energy. Since drinking AG1 daily, I have definitely felt more energized. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and more, but it's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. I know with AG1, I'm giving my body high-quality nutrition. Every batch of AG1 goes through a rigorous testing process, so you know it is safe. And AG1 ingredients are sourced for absorption, potency, and nutrient density. AG1 is the supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and I am really happy to have them sponsoring my show. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash thoughts from a page. That's drink, A-G, the number one, dot com, slash thoughts from a page. Check it out. This clip is from my interview with Jillian McAllister about her August 2022 thriller, Wrong Place, Wrong Time. The original interview posted on August 2nd, 2022. The premise for Wrong Place, Wrong Time drew me in from the second I picked up the book. She really focuses on all aspects of the story, much more so than in most thrillers. I love that the characters were likable and genuine, the plot was unique, and that there were so many twists and turns that I did not see coming. Moreover, it is such a thought-provoking book. I still think about it regularly. What would it be like to go back in time to our earlier selves? And as a mom, what kind of impact am I having on my children? As a mom of three kids, the going back in time and Jen is putting herself back into situations she's already lived, but she has so much more knowledge, so her perspective is completely different. And I loved that. Like, I think that's what appeals to me so much about time travel is two things. One, being able to go back in time and live experiences you've already lived from a different perspective. 
but also to see people that you haven't seen in a long time, like my grandparents or my mother. But I think also that applies to seeing a younger Todd. You know, she's really thrilled to see her son at a younger age again and remember what that was like. And it just kind of brought her back. And I loved how well you brought those feelings to the surface. Yeah, that is, I hear that a lot. And it's such an honor to hear it from parents. Because I I just think it must be, you know, parenting Todd as a two-year-old is not the same as Todd as a 10-year-old. And by the time Todd is 10, the toddler Todd is gone forever. And I find that such a poignant thing. And so, you know, I, I kind of really like to write about parenthood and I find it very interesting. And I think that added that kind of loadedness to the narrative of you're going back and you're finding things that you thought were lost forever. And I think that's such a human desire to do that. Like, you know, as you say, to, to see people that have passed away, but also to see somebody's past self. And there's there's no more, like that looms really large in childhood because children change so much. Like I just, I found it so fascinating. I couldn't help but include it. Well, and you have a great sentence that's toward the end of the book, but will not be a spoiler. You say, perhaps the strangest thing about traveling back through the past is the changes people themselves undergo. So you're realizing, okay, Todd and Kelly are so different now than they were 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And I thought that was so interesting because we don't really think about that day to day. And you're only interacting with everybody's present person, of course. And so you sometimes, until you see a photo or somebody reminds you of something, you don't always remember, oh my gosh, you know, this is what we were like 10 years ago or 15 years ago. And this is what it was like parenting a two-year-old versus parenting an 18-year-old. It just really brought a lot of those thoughts to the surface and that that really resonated with me. And as I have recommended it to other people and they've been posting about it, they're all saying the same thing. So I think that's the other aspect of the book. In addition to being a thriller, you really have so much humanity and parenting and being a mother and just all these different topics that a lot of times people aren't thinking as much about when they're reading a thriller. Yeah. And I always think with thrillers, like, I feel like why do one thing when you can do it all? And, you know, it's one place on time is a love story and it is an homage to parenting and it's a family drama and it's a why done it. And I just kind of think, like, I read a lot of Tana French and I think she does that so well when you don't have to sacrifice character to write a thriller with a great plot. You can kind of do it all. And for me, that that poignancy, particularly of parenthood, but of many things. And like you say, the way, you know, why not write a, a, a cracking plot, but also a, a sort of, I don't know, a, yeah, a sort of rumination on how people change throughout the years. Like, I think that's kind of life, isn't it? And I think fiction should sort of reflect that. I think so too. So you've set the bar very high for thriller writers. (laughs) Thank you. This segment is from my chat with Elena Armas about the Spanish love deception, which Atria published in February of this year. My original interview aired February 11th, 2022. Elena's story of first self-publishing this book, having it be nominated as a Goodreads Choice Selection, which rarely happens to self-published books, and then selling it to Atria to publish it is so interesting. She is a romance blogger and clearly knew what people were looking for in a romance novel. Her character's love interest, Erin Blackford, was all over TikTok as the best book boyfriend. The term book boyfriend was something I was not even familiar with until her book came out. 
My middle daughter loves romance books and is a huge fan of both of Elena's books. So let's talk about Aaron Blackford. Mm-hmm. I know from reading the book myself how much I liked Aaron, and then I saw that TikTok users have been calling him their book boyfriend. He's clearly resonating with people. Did you have an inspiration for him? Like, where did he come from? I did not have any particular inspiration for Aaron. That's a really hard question to answer because I, I never thought that... To be 100% honest, and maybe I shouldn't say this, but when I was writing Iron Blackford, I kept thinking, the things that leave this man's mouth, they are not real. They are a little over the top, you know, but at the same time, I, I, I'm a really big, I, I go really big on, on cheesy things, and I love cheesy scenes, and, and, and I say cheesy in the best possible way. I don't think that's like a negative thing to say about a romance book. I do love when a character goes out of their way to show their love in a very communicative and open way like Aaron does. Um, So for me, when I say cheesy and over the top, I mean it in the best way possible. And I kept thinking about that when I was writing Aaron, but I just went with my gut and I said, I mean, what do I have to lose? I'm just going to make him as perfect as I can. And that's what I, that's what I tried. Uh, there was no inspiration from real life, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're like, I wish I knew him in real life. <laughs> I wish. I'm constantly asked, hey, where can I find my own Aaron Blackford? And I never have an answer for that. <laughs> You're like, I wish I did. <laughs> yeah, I wish. Well, that's really fun that so many people feel like he is the perfect book boyfriend. It is. It is. It's I mean, his character is something, it's, it's one of the things I'm most proud of. I really, <laughs> I really love him and I love how much, how much everyone seems to also love him. That's, that's one of the, that, that, that's one big compliment there. I think it must be so rewarding when you create a character and you hear from readers how much they love that character or how much that character is resonating with them. Yeah, is yeah, you know, you're right. It's very rewarding. Also, because I'm coming from being on the other side. And I I know the feeling of reading a book and falling in love with the love interest at the same time as the protagonist. And I love that feeling. So knowing that uh, that this book is doing that to people, is having this effect, is just, I mean, <laughs> there's nothing like this. Is 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 Honestly, it makes it, it makes all the tough parts and all the hard parts about this, it it makes it worthwhile. Well, one of the things I was wondering was because you were such a big romance reader and reviewer, how did that factor into your writing? Well, I think the most, so the main influence that me being a reader and a reviewer had in me becoming a writer is that I, I know what I like as a reader and I know what works with me and you know what they say write the book that you would love to read so I just do that after reading so much and having you know good and positive experiences with new things and also negative or not disappointing disappointing but underwhelming experiences with other things that I that were new and didn't like I really I I really knew what to do with with certain things about the book, like with certain tropes or with certain scenes, because I just I just went with what I knew I would like as a reader. 
This next selection is from my conversation with Annabelle Monahan about her June 2022 novel, Nora Goes Off Script. The original interview aired June 10th of this year. I absolutely loved this book. Nora Goes Off Script stars a woman who writes Hallmark movies and ends up falling in love with an actor from one of the movies that she writes. The story is just so well done. I am not generally much of a Hallmark movie watcher, but at the time I read this book, my sweet father was pretty far along with Alzheimer's, and Hallmark movies were one of the few things on TV that would settle him down. That and Astros games. While I preferred the Astros games, I spent many a visit watching Hallmark movies, and my conversation with Annabelle about how she landed on this plotline was so entertaining. How did you come up with the subject matter for this one? Well, it came in a lot of different from a lot of different directions, and I think that maybe I'd been thinking about it for a long time. In 2019, I was sick in bed for a while, and I sort of got hooked on the Hallmark Channel. You know those, you know, 120 minute made for television romance movies. And I would sit there and I'd watch like two and three in a row. And I'd think to myself, like, wait, isn't that the same movie? Just like with slightly (laughs) different details. You know, last time she had a cupcake store and this time she has a ballet studio. But isn't that the same guy? Like, I just couldn't get over how it was the same movie over and over again. And I ended up actually waiting until the end to see the credits, to see who was writing these movies. Because I I thought maybe it's just the same person who keeps doing this. And I just sort of ran with it. I started wondering what kind of a person would want to write the same kind of movie over and over again with these very idealized towns, idealistic towns, and very just, it's like kind of selling a female fantasy that we're all trying to pick up on. And um, that's where Nora came from, because I was just wondering what it would be like to be a woman who writes these movies, you know, to support her family if she'd never actually been in love. So that's where that came from. Was it so much fun to write this book? I loved all of the humor sprinkled throughout. Are you funny in real life? Um, I, I, I like to have a good sense of humor. Um, I like to, I think things are funny. I, I think just about everything's funny. I, that's just how I look at things. So that's a very fun way to live. I had more fun writing this book than I've ever had doing anything else in my life. Um, I wrote it during quarantine, during you know very dark times when I wasn't quite sure that the world was a going concern. So I just sort of escaped into my laptop and just laughed. I just, I really had a great time writing it. Well, I had a great time reading it. I just thought you brought everything together, humor, a wonderful protagonist, this great relationship, a town, a job that actually is of going concern. <laughs> um, just so many different things that worked really well together. This next segment is from my interview with Fiona Davis about her January 2022 novel, The Magnolia Palace. The original interview aired January 25th, 2022. Fiona is a must-read author for me. I have been a fan of her since her first book, The Dollhouse, which came out in 2016. I love New York City, and I always have. We lived in Connecticut when I was young, and we spent a lot of time in the city. My mom's sister and I continued to visit as we got older, and then we brought our girls as well. So the city holds a special place in my heart, and my middle daughter now goes to college there. In each book, Fiona focuses on a different iconic building in New York City, and I love learning more about each one that she has chosen to focus on. The Magnolia Palace is set in the Frick Collection, which has been closed for several years. 
and after reading Fiona's book, I am anxiously awaiting its reopening. It was my mom's favorite museum in New York City. So you know I'm always dying to know, what's the next building? (laughs) So there's actually two, believe it or not. I started looking into Carnegie Hall for a location because above it, there's all these artist studios that were there since right after it was built, filled with famous artists and photographers. And it's, it's just this incredible little city on top of Carnegie Hall. And I started doing research into it. And then I was asked by Amazon and a, a publishing company called Plimpton if I would take part in this anthology of all historical fiction authors writing short stories. And I thought, oh, I could set a short story at Carnegie Hall, and that will work really, really well. And I did that, and that will be out this summer. So keep an eye out for that. Oh, that's good to know. Yeah, I haven't even heard of that. What's it called? I'm not sure what the anthology is called yet. I think they're still working on that. But I'll, I'll be posting everything on my website and on social media once, once we know when it's coming up. And, and I don't even know who else is involved, so that'll be fun to find out. You just preempted my next question. Yeah. And who else is writing books in it? Okay. So the short story, that's wonderful to know about. And that sounds fabulous. And the short story will be about Carnegie Hall. And I didn't realize that there were all those studios and rooms above Carnegie Hall. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're not there now. They've renovated oh, and made okay. it into education space and, and offices. But um, all these famous people, Marlon Brando lived there for a time. Wow. Bill Cunningham, the New York Times photographer, lived there. Just a ton of famous people live there and move through those buildings and studios. So it's it's kind of a, another secret of New York that you wouldn't know unless you looked up. That's really cool. Yeah. So that is in the works. And then the next book, I was trying to think of where to set one. And I got an email from a former Rockette who was in her 80s who said, hey, if you want to know the secrets of Radio City, you should reach out to me. And of course I did. <laughs> And she was incredible. She had all these archival materials that she'd saved about, you know, the schedule and here's what we did when, and this is how everything happened. And so I decided to set the next book at Radio City from the point of view of a Rockette in the 1950s. How much fun. (laughs) I am so excited about both of those. This clip is pulled from my interview with Charlotte McGonaghy about her August 2021 novel, Once There Were Wolves. The original interview aired July 30th, 2021. Once There Were Wolves was one of my top reads of last year, and I still recommend it to people regularly. The story is so beautifully written, and I learned a lot while reading it. For me, that is the perfect combination. Her focus on rewilding, both an area and a person's spirit, really resonated with me. The idea that returning species to a particular environment can completely rejuvenate that area is just wonderful. I like that term rewilding, and I'm not sure I'd ever heard it before. Yeah, it's a it's it's a beautiful word, isn't it? It's I think it kind of refers to returning a space to the way it was before humans ruined it. <laughs> <laughs> so when we talk about rewilding a landscape, we often talk about planting trees or reintroducing a species that has a kind of powerful impact on its environment. And I think there's something really kind of beautiful about the idea of rewilding our our own spirits. Most definitely. And I thought it was so interesting, your focus on the wolves and how they will impact the environment. And it wasn't something I thought a ton about in terms of returning a particular animal to an environment and the impact that would have on 
the growth of trees and other animals and some of those things. I loved how you brought it up periodically, and it's just so important. Obviously, we see daily now some of these ravages from climate change and environmental change. And so it's really important to have these stories out there. And I thought yours did that in such a great way because it's just woven into the story. You know, it's not some kind of extra lecture or nonfiction, which is great, but sometimes not as appealing to people, but it's just woven in every aspect of your book. Yeah. Yeah. It was important to me that this would never become, I guess, uh, a preaching book or something that people read and felt lectured to. I wanted it to feel just truthful and like an exploration of something that, you know, possibly we don't know as much as we need to know about it. I mean, I originally, initially before I started this project, had no clue about the impact that wolves have on their environments. So it was really fascinating for me to learn about that. And I kind of just wanted to share that in this novel. Well, how did you choose wolves and how did you choose Scotland? Originally, yeah, it it was funny. I initially had the idea to set the book in America. And that was because the idea came to me in a kind of amazing rush, unlike any of my other (laughs) writing has ever come to me. I was just reading an article. And by the time I'd finished it, I had an entire book in my head. And it was quite extraordinary. The article was about Pando the Trembling Giant, which is this beautiful, ancient living organism, the largest and oldest living organism in the world, which is a forest of quaking aspen trees in Utah. But it's not actually a forest. It's one tree that's all connected by this incredible root system under the ground. But this kind of very old organism is dying due to human impact. And the article kind of refers very briefly to the fact that if we brought wolves back into that area where they have been before, but they've now been hunted to extinction, if they were brought back, the tree system would be able to come back to life. But that would never happen because of the local kind of farming and hunting community. So I kind of knew instantly that I really wanted to write this story about a woman who who is going to bring these wolves back to this area in order to kind of bring this forest back to life, but who would be facing incredible pushback because nobody actually wanted her there. So then I, you know, obviously started looking into wolves themselves and learning about their impact and their incredible power. And I was very fascinated by the response that wolves receive from people. You know, they they kind of generate these intense feelings in a way that a lot of creatures don't. It's either they either kind of receive huge fear and hatred or intense love. So that dichotomy was really fascinating to me and I kind of knew, you know, that's that's what this this book needed to be about. The reason I ended up moving it to Scotland was because I just found that as someone with Scottish heritage myself, I spent a little bit of time there. It was more it felt more natural to me to write in that space. You know, the aesthetic of it kind of lent itself really well to a slightly noir mystery element of of the book. And it felt kind of beautiful to be writing about a space, an entire nation where the wolves have been killed to extinction and, and then the idea of bringing them back. 
Um, I, I just knew the place a little bit better than I knew Utah, which I knew absolutely nothing about. <laughs> Next, I have included an excerpt from my interview with Peng Shepard about her book, The Cartographers, which first published in March of this year. Her original interview aired on March 15, 2022. The Cartographers is such a clever and unique story and was one of the very first early reads and pre-pub author chats that I hosted for my Patreon group. Both the book and Peng were a huge hit with everyone, and we had a wonderful discussion. Her focus on maps and their uses and the New York Public Library setting really made the book resonate with me. I was particularly intrigued by the story that first set her on the path to writing this book. Well, we've talked a tiny bit about this already, but what was the hardest part about writing this book? Oh, um, it was, I think it was figuring out how to reveal the mystery in a way that that would be, that would make sense to the reader and also feel uh, compelling to read because it's, I've I've read a lot of mysteries and so I have I've had the experience of reading mysteries and I know when it feels good and when it's working but it was a really different experience trying to write one because your first instinct or at least mine was because this was the first time I've tried to write a mystery was I tried to hold everything back because that's the point of the mystery is a big reveal at some point right and so I got all the way to the end of the first draft and I gave it to my editor and she said well th- this is all really interesting but I don't understand like what <laughs> we got to the end and I still don't know what the mystery was. And I realized, oh, she, she's definitely right. And so it was a process of going back through and learning when to let the reader in on different pieces of information or different clues that Nell discovers as she discovers them. Kind of dropping them in as you go so that slowly the reader is beginning to piece together the story. Right. Yeah. And I also think that sometimes when you're writing the mystery, the whole mystery isn't even clear to you yet. And so sometimes the first time through, you're just trying to figure out what the mystery is. And then once you know it, you're able to decide how to how to tell that story, how to let the clues out, how to how to guide the reader on the same journey that you just took. This may be a really hard question to ask to keep it spoiler free, but how did you come up with what the resolution was going to be? Was that something you knew from the beginning? It's so creative. Oh, thank you. Um, I uh, I think I did know that I wanted the book to end up where it does end up pretty early, but I did have no idea how I was going to get there until pretty late in the process. The One of the big reasons that I wrote the book in the first place was because I love maps so much, and I think a lot of us are similarly fascinated with them. And, you know, these days when you open up a, a Google navigation app and you're just using it, it's comforting that you're you know, basically 100% sure that you're going to get to exactly where you want to go and you're not going to get lost. But I do feel like at the same time, a lot of us feel that we've lost that sense of wonder a little bit with maps because everything is so knowable in such intricate detail on a Google map that you, you know, you'll always get to where you want to go, but you're probably not going to discover anything new along the way. And I just really wanted the end of the book to have that feeling that when you open up a paper map, you still can find that sense of wonder and feel that urge to explore. And like there is a possibility that you might discover something new on that map that you hadn't seen before. I love that. (laughs) Well, do you think it gets easier to write books the longer you write? I don't know if it gets easier, but I think what does get easier is believing that you're going to make it through. Because I, so I'm sure you've had uh, authors on that are you know meticulous plotters or very good outliners they're really they're just really good planners 
and my process is not like that at all. I'm I'm not capable of laying down any kind of a an outline or a summary or a plan before I start writing. I just have to make a really big mess and then find the story within the mess after I'm done exploring. And so when you do it that way, it's really fun, but it's also really messy and really scary because at one point your draft is just just chaos. You know, it's just a, a monster of pages that don't make any sense. They don't go together and you're sifting through them and wondering like, do you do you even have anything? Is this even a story? Can it be salvageable? And so I think um, it never gets easier to figure out what is the diamond that you're searching for in, in this mess, but it has become, uh, or I, I feel that I'm slowly gaining more confidence every time I do manage to find the diamond that, you know, the next mess of pages that I look at, I know there is something here. You have to trust your instincts. Just keep working. You're going to be able to do this. I will get there eventually. Yes. (laughs) This next clip is from my conversation with Dolan Perkins Valdez about Take My Hand, which came out in April 2022. The full interview ran on April 20th of this year. Take My Hand is one of my top reads of 2022. And I talk more about that in my recent Best of 2022 episode with Kelly Hooker. This book has stayed with me since I read it early in the year. It is such an important, profound, and thought-provoking read, and I have literally recommended it to everyone I know. Dolan conducted so much research, and I loved learning about her behind-the-scenes stories in our interview. My personal book club is reading this one in 2023, and I cannot wait to read it again before we meet. Well, where did the idea come from the story? I mean, I understand where it happened in history, but how did you learn about it and then decide to write about it? Well, I grew up hearing about the Tuskegee syphilis experiment because my dad graduated from Tuskegee in the late 1960s. So I knew about that. Later, I learned a little bit about the Ralph sisters. Every now and then I would watch a documentary and they would appear, footage of the actual sisters would appear. So I'd heard a little bit about forced sterilizations. I'd heard about the case for reparations against people in the state of North Carolina for sterilizing women there. but I had never really made some connections before between Ralph and between Tuskegee and also just this moment in history. I was reading the Montgomery Advertiser as I was digging a little bit about the Ralph sister case. And the head nurse, who was a white woman, was originally named in the lawsuit. And uh, in a statement to the newspaper, she said, well, it must have been okay to sterilize those girls because all eight of the nurses who worked at the clinic were black. And I said to myself, what? I I had never read this before. I never found anything about those nurses. I don't know who they are to this day. And that is why I decided to imagine this character, Civil Townsend. So I could imagine what it must've been like to be a nurse at that clinic and to have something like this happen under your watch. And you must've had to do all sorts of research. I can't even imagine. I did. I went through a lot of newspapers. I read books. Um, You know, my favorite book that I read was called Killing the Black Body by Dorothy Roberts. I read articles. I then traveled to Montgomery and I met with Joseph Levin, the lawyer, the young lawyer who argued the case, who was very, very helpful. He got the files out of storage. They had not been out of storage in 45 years. Wow. Yes. And and said that it remained one of the most significant cases he'd ever argued. He's retired now. So uh, he enjoyed sitting there and chatting with me. 
And then he asked me if I had called a woman by the name of Jessie Bly. And I said, no, who was that? And he said, oh, she was the girl's social worker. So I called her out of the blue and introduced myself and asked her if I could take her to dinner. And she said, sure. And so uh, I went to her house. I met her family. And um, and she brought a, a church friend with her. And I asked her where she wanted to go to dinner. And she said, let's go to Red Lobster. And I said, <laughs> okay. And I hadn't been to Red Lobster in years. We had a good dinner there. And I said, am I driving? She says, oh, yes, honey, you're driving. And so we, I took them out on a, you know, a nice dinner and we talked and she shared everything that she remembered. And I felt so fortunate because she was the one who, in my book, they don't have a social worker. The social worker has stopped coming around. But she was the one who discovered the girls had been sterilized. When I saw that you had interviewed her, I thought, how cool. She must have had so much personal insight that you could not have garnered from the newspaper or anywhere else. Oh, yes, because she was close to the family. The girls would come to her house and spend the night with her kids. She had children, and they would come to her house and and be with her children. And when she discovered it, her husband was in the military. She was so outraged. She told me, she said, Dolan, I just saw bulls behind my eyes. Bulls. That's what she told me. And, you know, um, she said she went to her husband's commanding officer and asked him, what should I do? I, I can't believe this happened. And he named, uh, he mentioned a young civil rights attorney in town. And she went to Joe Levin's office. He wasn't there. She sat out in the waiting room and waited all day for him to return. And when he came back, she told him what had happened and he took the case. I wondered how they had connected up originally. I always find it completely fascinating to see how the story gets from the individual to the attorney when there's going to be a big lawsuit like that. So just really takes one person. And I guess that's what's so much more appalling about the story is that there weren't more people like her. Yes. I mean, there are a lot of people like her throughout history, right? Ordinary, everyday people who do these extraordinary things and never take any credit for it, right? Absolutely. I just meant in this instance. But yes, definitely. I love those type of stories, these people that definitely do way more than you would be expected of them. And it's fabulous. But in this instance, I can't imagine that people weren't just screaming about it everywhere. I agree. It, it was really a tragic moment, I have to say, Cindy, that I still think about all the time. It could have been my girls, right? I just, I think about it could have been any of our girls. And I think it's really important for us to learn this history because we still have vulnerable members of our population who could be subject to something like this. And so it's really important to me that people know this history and they know this story. This next conversation is with Bonnie Garmus, author of Lessons in Chemistry. The book published in April 2022, and the full interview ran on April 5th. This book has been everywhere since it came out, and it has made so many of the best of the year lists. Lessons in Chemistry is Bonnie's debut, and her publishing journey is such a wild story with bidding wars for both the book and the screen adaptation rights. Brie Larson will be starring as Elizabeth Sott in the screen version on Apple Plus TV. It always makes me so happy when a book finds such a large audience, especially a story with a very strong female protagonist. Well, you have quite a publishing story, and I'd love to talk a little bit more about it. Can you walk me through how it all came about? Yeah, I had moved to London. We'd been transferred first to Switzerland. And then we were transferred again to London. 
And, you know, when you move around a lot, like I've done, going to a new place is always really exciting, but it also has drawbacks. You have to start over all over with friends and that can be really difficult. And you, for me, I also had to sometimes start over with work. I couldn't always keep all the clients I had if I was moving from one place to another. So I came to London and my husband was traveling a lot. I didn't know anybody. And I took an online course at Curtis Brown called Write to the End of Your Novel because I had written this book. I was about two thirds of the way through it when I took that course. And um, in the course, I met some people online. They seemed really nice. And I decided to apply for their in-person course because I thought it'd be great you know, to meet people in real life. <laughs> this is, of course, pre-COVID. So I got into that course, and that was just a three-month, one-night-a-week sort of thing. And it was really great because I met really nice writers. Writers tend to share you know, the same kind of issues. Um, we, we face a lot of rejection. Writers are usually alone. We read a lot. So it was really great once a week to be in a room with a lot of people who felt the same way I did about reading and books. And we had a wonderful instructor, Charlotte Mendelssohn, who's absolutely brilliant. And so from there, at the end of that course, they offer a, a cocktail party sort of situation where you get to meet some of the agents of Curtis Brown, which for all of us was a really big deal. And the idea behind that is that you get to pitch your book to them and maybe they've read a little bit of it, but maybe they haven't. You know, these are really, really busy people. But that night, I went to the cocktail party, and Felicity Blunt was there, and she was handing out name tags. And she called my name, and I, you know, I got up and went over to get my tag, and she put all the name tags down and led me out of the room. And <laughs> I thought, what? You know, I wasn't sure what was going on, but I was certain that she probably had the wrong writer. And, um, she said, I read, you know, your, I think it was 5,000 words she read. She said, I read the first 5,000 and I'm really, really interested in your book. And I really, really want to see it when it's done. And I still wasn't sure she meant me. And I wasn't sure until she said Elizabeth Zott. And I went, oh, okay, thank God. Anyway, so Felicity and I, we really hit it off. And um, a few weeks later, or actually, no, I guess it was a couple months later, I still wasn't done with the book. I told her I was going to be done in June. And I think that cocktail party was in February. But a couple months later, she ended up just saying, you know, I'm going to sign you before you're done, because that's how much I believe in your book. And for me, I think that has to be the dream. Because first of all, she was the my dream agent. She was an agent that I had identified that I really wanted to work with. I'd seen a video of her talking about agenting and what she looked for. And I just got the sense this was someone I could really work with. And I really liked her personality. So there I was sitting in her office and she said, well, let's, you know, let's do this. I'm going to sign you. And I, <laughs> I was so excited going home that day that I accidentally dialed the emergency number on my phone <laughs> and I didn't know it. And I, you know, I'm walking to the tube and suddenly my phone starts ringing and it's, it's London emergency services or whatever they call themselves. And they said, did you, is this a real emergency? And I looked at my phone and I went, oh my God. I said, no, well, I mean, but I mean, I did just get signed by this agent. <laughs> oh, that is so funny. I know she said, have a nice day. And she <laughs> hung up. So anyway, 
So from there, Felicity and I worked on, well, I finished the book a couple months later, and then we worked on it. And then she got it prepped and ready for Frankfurt Book Fair. And I think it surprised both of us that it ended up doing so well at Frankfurt Book Fair. I Actually, I can just speak for myself. I was absolutely shocked <laughs> that there was so much interest. You know, it's you write a book about a woman, a TV cooking show host who's a chemist who doesn't really want to talk about cooking, but really about chemistry. And that sounds like a hard sell, doesn't it? But there it was. It had a really great response. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the Professional, professional book, book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy, happy reading! reading. Thank you so much for joining me on this trip down memory lane today. These were some of my most memorable and favorite episodes, and I hope they resonated with you as well. I would love your feedback about this type of best of episode and whether you enjoyed it, and I hope you will tune in again soon. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.